Hey everyone, what's going on? Welcome to a brand new edition of the Sam Bissell Podcast on the Ambiguous Podcast Solutions. And right now I'm going to be bringing you the latest and greatest going on around the world of Hollywood. Hope everyone had a wonderful weekend, whether it's going to the movies, whether it's enjoying football or anything else that you're doing over the weekend. Hope you enjoyed doing that. A big week about to come upon us, especially if you're a movie fan, an MCU fan. It is Spider-Man No Way Home Week. It has finally arrived. The film is set to debut on Thursday during there are early screenings happening. I know close to me, there's around 3, 3.30 screenings at some theaters. So on Thursday, there are going to be beginning screenings for probably the most highly anticipated film of the year, of the last maybe two years since Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker, Avengers Endgame, there has nothing been like the hype for this film. And a lot of people, of course, are excited about it. Tonight is the world premiere for the film. It's finally gonna be screening for press, for the cast and crew that were making the movie. For a lot of people, they will be getting their first look at the film tonight at the premiere in New York City. And there will be reviews coming out. Social media embargoes will be lifting around 1.30 Eastern Standard Time, 10.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. So a lot of people will be getting their first actual reviews and details about the film. So if you don't want to get spoiled, if you don't want to know anything whatsoever, definitely try to stay off the internet for the next couple of days. It's going to be hard, but these are the things that people love to see. These are the, the events that theaters, theater chains, Hollywood are looking towards to see how people are going to respond. There's going to be big box office numbers. We're going to get into all of it this upcoming week. I'll be talking about some of the past Spider-Man films. I have a poll coming out uh, on Spider-Man No Way Home, which I kind of put out on Twitter detailing what is your favorite Spider-Man, whether it's Tobey Maguire or Andrew Garfield, Tom Holland. I even put in the animated Spider-Verse Miles Morales. So if you want to detail whichever one is your favorite, I'll have a whole lot of other stuff talking about the movies in the next couple of days leading up to my preview and of course my review that is set to come out during the weekend for Spider-Man No Way Home. Non-spoiler, of course, on the film. So there's a lot going on that front tomorrow. I'll also talk about some of the social media reviews, just quick generic thoughts that people thought about it just to kind of get it in a idea a temperature of what the direction of this film is going to be and also the reception that people are feeling about the film now that they're finally able to see it but that's as the week continues to go on there's a lot of other stuff that i want to talk about but again spider-man no way home it is starting today tonight and we'll have a lot more coverage of it leading into its release on thursday and also eventually into its release on december 17th this friday so a lot to get into on that front but there's a lot of other stuff that i want to talk about today as well i'm going to be getting into my annual box office recap, of course. I'm also going to be talking about some award season roundup that happened this morning on the Critics' Choice Awards front and on the Golden Globes as well, and a bunch of trending trailers that came out over the last couple of days. But again, you saw, you heard that I mentioned the box office before, and if you know me, every single week I like to kick off the week talking about the box office, but there was something else that happened last night that I need to talk about first right away, and that, of course, is the season three finale of HBO Succession, and this is a show that just continues to be one of the best, if not the best show on television right now, from the writing to the acting. It's just been an incredible three-season run for this show so far, and the third season just continues to show even after the hiatus that they had because of COVID-19, because of the production holds on not just the show but around Hollywood in general they really had to delay the season for a full year and we finally were able to get season three this fall and it just continued like the like no time had passed whatsoever the writing again was top-notch the acting everything was just as good as it was in the first two seasons and I did a review on the first half and I really liked what I saw leading into the second half of the season and overall I think season three was a little bit more of a slow paced season. I don't think it had the same kind of energy as season two. However, though, I will say after watching the finale last night, all if you do a slow burn, if you reach a pinnacle and you reach a, reg a resolution and twist that can really impact the story and what you were watching over the last couple weeks, then I then it feels earned. And watching the season three finale last night, it was well earned and then some. This was a fantastic finale of season three of Succession. I absolutely loved this episode. 
And if there's one thing that you can count on with succession that some other shows sometimes fumble with, whether it's season finales or series finales, is that with succession or or with other shows, sometimes they they just are able to blunder it or they don't really live up to the the hype or the expectations of what they've been building up to. But every single season of succession has been able to leave people with their jaws open and just gasping for air on what's going to happen next, what they just watched, and then just kind of rewiring your brain for reveals that happen that it make you question what you saw throughout that set season and this finale does the exact same thing for season three some of the twists and turns that happen just are you wouldn't even think that they are able to happen or or that you didn't see it coming beforehand and that's the that's the master class of the writing that succession is able to do and it showcases in this episode and there's also i think some incredible acting in this episode that will surely get not just i think nominations but wins for people such as sarah snook or kieran colkin alongside jeremy strong and brian cox as well i think that if succession had a great emmy run two years ago really four seasons two that happened in 2020 I do believe that season three for the 2022 Emmy season is going to have another great run for this one as well just because everything is top notch everyone is on their a-gaming they know these characters so well and the journey that these characters are going on the evolution and even though we might not like some of these characters the way that they're able to shield some of the emotions that they have but really you see that they care for one another in a way and that they might not care for the outside world but within this family in their own twisted way they care for one another and i just love the way that they're really able able to to go about that and then being able to have people excited for what's to come in season four and 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 asking yourselves what's going to happen with such and such characters that you one minute thought one thing about a relationship but then the next thing it's completely turned on its head and the way that certain conversations go by the ending of the episode you're looking at them in, in different ways and again it's, it's just a master class across the board and i absolutely love this finale it's my favorite finale of the three seasons so far. I think season two, the ending of that one when Kendall basically goes against his father again, defines him, is incredible getting his life back, but then what he goes through in the season is also, I think, phenomenal, and the way it ends, it just begs you to wonder what the hell are we going to get in in season four, and, and I absolutely love how I always thought that the, the kids would team up in the end, and this is a little bit of a spoiler, so if you don't want to know anything, leave for a couple minutes and then come back, but I just want to talk about real quick a spoiler about the, basically the, 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 the Logan siblings, especially Kendall, Shiv, and Roman, basically teaming up by the end of this, and I always thought we were going to get here it was a topsy-turvy way and I definitely was shying away from that a little bit as the season was going on but to see that it actually landed that way and how it all came about was was great and again I think this this leads us to a great anticipation for the fourth season just as season two did for leading into season three and overall thinking about this season I really really enjoyed it I still think Season two is my favorite overall, but the way that season three, again, is more of a slow buildup and the way that the last two to three episodes are able to really drive home what they've been really trying to get at for this whole season, I think greatly impacts and elevates what this third season was. And it would probably rank as my second favorite. It would be season two, season three, and then season one. And I think overall... For the cast, again, across the board, great great acting all the way around, but sometimes in, in seasons, in, in all of television, certain people shine the most. And I think we all know how great Brian Cox is. He's been playing Logan Roy since the beginning, and in every single season, he does an outstanding job. Same thing with Jeremy Strong, but I think this season, the, the two people that really stood out the most were, were two people I just mentioned for this episode. And overall, I think it was, it was Sarah Snook playing Shiv Roy, 
Roy and Kieran Culkin as Roman that they, they did things in this season that were very much draw, driven towards them and their character arcs in, in being integrated into the company and really kind of seeing the, the pushback and the pull that, that it means to be in their father in this company. I just thought that they were able to show vulnerabilities and, and emotions and character developments that we didn't see with these guys in the last two seasons. And I just think that they definitely don't just deserve an Emmy nomination. Again, I think they also deserve a win in their respective categories as well. I think they really came into their own in the season. I, again, I can't wait to see what they do moving forward. And everyone else was just top-notch. Jesse Armstrong, who's the creator of the show, he writes a lot of the episodes. He just knows this show like the back of his hand now. He knows the characters. I think he knows where this is leading to. And I wouldn't be surprised if this definitely ends in two seasons. It seems like we can get probably up to a fifth season where with season four is kind of Laying, the, laying more of the groundwork for developing more of this world and the characters, but also laying the groundwork for the end game of what we're going to get. And eventually, of course, potentially with season five, we could very well get that. But I don't want that to come anytime soon. I want to keep living in this world with these characters. And again, for the hiatus that this show was on because of the pandemic, and you probably didn't get to really write these characters for a long time. And, you, and, you, and especially for the cast and the crew, they haven't worked on this show probably since sometime in 2019 and you had a full year off and you didn't get back until fall winter of last year into the beginning of this year you, you might expect a drop off or so just because it's been a, it's been a while and you're, you're probably dusting off some rust a little bit but it didn't show whatsoever and it, it just was another fantastic season Matthew McFadden as well uh, Nicholas Burt, Burt, Burt Patel excuse me was really good as well everyone just top of their game I love this season second second favorite season of mine still think season two is the best but overall fantastic show fantastic episode and I think it remains the best television show series on TV right now HBO people were wondering what could be the next Game of Thrones and, and this isn't the epic grand cinematic scale that Game of Thrones was but in terms of being talked about on social media a lot talked about within pop culture I do think HBO has found one of their next ones and they just continue to roll the dice in this what in, in a show that started out very slow in its first season to get where it is now incredible absolutely incredible and again I can't wait to see more hopefully if there are no delays or anything sometime next year so overall what did you guys think about the season three finale of succession also your overall thoughts on this third installment of the show let me know what you thought down below and leave your thoughts now to switch on over from television to the world of film of course i'm going to start out with talking about this weekend's box office recap and in the last couple of days, we had a big release that came out. It was a highly anticipated adaptation of West Side Story from Steven Spielberg that came out. It's going to be a huge potential Oscar contender as well. It was the big release before, of course, we get the onslaught of Spider-Man No Way Home and, of course, The Matrix Resurrections in the next couple of weeks. And there was a lot of interest in how this would do. This is, again, based off of a classic adaptation of a Broadway show from 1957, but, of course, the, the this was also an adaptation of the 1961 film that went on to win 10 of its of its 11 nominated Academy Awards that year, respectively. And it's the most acclaimed movie musical of all time. How is the, the greatest filmmaker of all time in Steven Spielberg going to accomplish it? And if you want to find out my review on that, I did a separate review over the weekend that you can check out on the Sam Bissell podcast. But in terms of the financial aspect of this, will people actually go out to see the film? And unfortunately, even though the film created Critically, and I think audience-wise is a major success for people that have seen it. Not a lot of people did go out to see it this weekend as West Side Story only made around $10.5 million in its opening weekend. And another sad part about the opening weekend for this internationally, it only grossed $4.4 million, whereas Disney thought worldwide it might be able to accumulate around $25 million to start everything out. They thought domestically 
projections were a little bit more towards the 13 to 15 million dollar range but instead of making that domestically worldwide it made right around there with 14.9 million dollars and unfortunately that's not that's not a great way of starting off your run if you are a west side story and it brings up a bunch of questions that have come out this year for musicals for representation within the latino community about why people are not going to see these films that happened over the summertime within the heights and there's just i think a lot of questions as to why this is really happening. And it doesn't help that this has a $100 million budget. And it also doesn't help that In the Heights made $11.5 million since opening weekend. But the caveat that you could give to that potentially is the fact that that was a day and day release. It was on HBO Max. Maybe people went to go see it at their home instead of going to the theaters. West Side Story was a theatrical exclusive only release and it only made it made a million and a half less than what In the Heights made and, and that's a little problematic and it's just it's a shame that movie musicals and I said this in my review of West Side Story I said it if you follow me on social media my reviews for the film there as well that this has probably been the best year for movie musicals that I could ever think of in a long long time where the quality of work on a musical is as good as it is there are three at least definitely four four movie musicals this year one releasing worldwide or in wider release in the beginning of next year that was released limited right now in Cyrano with Peter Dinklage that people are raving about. It's getting award season buzz as well. And then there's the three other ones that were released over the, the last couple of months in In the Heights, which again, critical acclaim. Everyone who saw it loved it, but didn't do well box office wise. It was a dud. Tick, Tick, Boom, a phenomenal movie. Probably even with West Side Story, Tick, Tick, Boom is probably still my favorite film of the year. I love that film to death. That's on Netflix. So whatever money was put into there is already being lost. However, we don't know the specific numbers of people that watched that film on Netflix. And now, of course, you have West Side Story, which is, again, a phenomenal film, a daunting cast for the goat in Steven Spielberg. Even though we all love what he does, how would he be able to pull this off? He does it. And I think I, and including including myself with others, believe that this is better than the 1961 adaptation. And just people aren't going to see the film and, and there's a lot of reasons why that could be happening people are questioning how is this possible why is this why is this happening with movie musicals right now when these films are, are so so good but there's no buzz around and people aren't going out there and there's a couple reasons for that i think the first one is that with movie musicals with films like these the demographic always goes a little older and f- other than house of gucci really which did fairly well during the Thanksgiving window for that film, a lot of adult films have not been doing all that well in theaters because that demographic is the most affected by COVID-19 really. And sure, there are still people within that demographic, older, that are going to the theater that feel comfortable, but now there are more variants out there. The Omicron variant is the latest one that have people scared right now and people are a little iffy about going out to whether it's a theater or just out in general right now because of that and people might not feel comfortable saying you know what why am I going to risk my health and pay money to go see a film and 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 risk myself in that kind of a way so I think that's one aspect of it I think the other one and and this one might be on Disney a little bit and the marketing and the strategy of releasing this film is why would you release it right now and I understand you probably want to get ahead of it because of of No Way Home is going to be a big big box office not bomb excuse me but big box office monster and Disney has some receipts happening with that film but that's going to be a majority of Sony getting all that box office receipts back and then of course you have The Matrix which The Matrix Resurrections isn't going to do the kind of money that Spider-Man No Way Home is going to do but it's still a major blockbuster that you don't really know a whole lot about and so you might be able to fit it in there right around the holiday times instead of waiting for this two-week ramp up that they're trying to do why would you put it a couple of weeks beforehand when you can just slot it right during the christmas holiday frame when i think more people are going to be going out you're going to have more families that are home people might feel safer in the next couple weeks to go to the movies why wouldn't you do it then and it's understandable that when they delayed this film from 2020 because that's when it was originally supposed to come out to december of this year 
when they did it uh, before now, they didn't think that we would have another variant, that everything would be a little bit better. And things are better, obviously, of course, but it's there are still some roadblocks and bumps. And again, other than, than House of Gucci, which has star power of Lady Gaga, really, and a couple of others, uh, people, the, the adult genre and the adult demographic is not coming out in droves like the younger demographic is for the Venom films or the MCU movies or even something like Ghostbusters Afterlife. It's just not happening right now, and, and it's a shame. And with these kinds of movies pre-pandemic, I don't even think you would get people to go see younger audience members to see this kind of film because they're just not interested in it, unfortunately. And again, I'm trying to, I'm somebody, I know other people are as well, trying to get the word out about it, but it's just not working. And you, it's going to be very interesting, I think, to see what happens in the next couple of days when this film does come out and 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 how it operates during the holiday frame is there going to be continued enough of of a buzz about it with all these other movies coming out that you can get more people to be excited about it and you just got to hope that the buzz continues because the buzz is there the praise is there the, the reviews are great enough that people that maybe were skeptical about it if word keeps getting out that might turn their heads a little bit and say, oh, maybe I want to go check this out instead. So it, it, it could have a better play over the holiday frame. We'll see how it does. But unfortunately, to start off, this is not where they wanted to be. And they already had very conservative estimates for opening weekend for this film. And it played below that. And, and it's very, very unfortunate because, again, I think I the, the, the best genre this year has been the movie musical genre. They put out really four out of five great films, minus Dear Evan Hansen. And I just think, unfortunately, people are not going for it at this particular moment in time, which is which is a damn shame. And people, they did it within the Heights. They, they keep pulling out the Greatest Showman card. And maybe because with Greatest Showman, it opened with $8.8 million. It was considered a dud. It was considered to be a bomb. People didn't think it was going to recover. And then over the next couple of weeks, it was able to do that. And overall, domestically, it grossed $171 million at the box office. And it became a, a dark horse success in 2017 and I think with a lot of musicals people think that's going to happen with every single movie but I think with Greatest Showman it was just a rare form that it was the right moment the right time the music was there everyone loved the soundtrack people love Hugh Jackman Zendaya Zac Efron and have the star power and as much as I love this cast Rachel Zegler Ariana DeBeau Mike Feist David Alvarez they're all amazing Rita Moreno they're not they're not going to draw people to the seats unfortunately and the only one that can do it is Steven Spielberg and as much as I think Steven Spielberg is the greatest filmmaker of all time he doesn't pull in especially in today's modern day the kind of numbers that a even a Quentin Tarantino or, or especially a Christopher Nolan does at this particular moment in time so Ken, if people want to see this film, it's going to be because of the name West Side Story, and it's going to be that it's directed by Steven Spielberg. So is that going to be enough to get people to put their butts in the seats to watch this film? We'll see how it all goes out. We'll see how it plays out, but not a great start for West Side Story in this past weekend. Then moving on to number two, which was the reigning box office champ for two straight weekends, was the Disney animated film Encanto, which grossed an additional $9.4 million at the box office office and now has 71 million dollars domestically 80 million dollars internationally for a worldwide accumulation excuse me of 151 million dollars at the box office and then coming in at number three this past weekend was ghostbusters afterlife which grossed an additional seven million dollars at the box office it now has 112 million dollars domestically $52 million internationally for a worldwide gross of $164 million. And for Ghostbusters Afterlife, I think this is another rare occasion where a big IP franchise does really well at the theaters, especially when you give it that COVID curve grade a little bit. It did really, really, really well. And so I think, could we see more films from this in the future? Who knows? But I think people responded to this. They responded to the positive, uh, to the, to the positive reviews, and they really enjoyed 
enjoyed what they saw with the film. Moving on to number four this weekend, it was House of Gucci, which grossed another additional $4 million at the box office. It now has a domestic total of $41 million, $51 million internationally, and a worldwide total of $93 million. And then rounding out the top five at this weekend's box office was staying at the number five spot is Eternals, which grossed an additional $3 million and now has $161 million domestically, $234 million internationally for a worldwide total of $395 million. And again, that's nothing nothing to sneeze at, but it's not the greatest number that Eternals needed to make at this conjecture. But again, with the COVID curve, when you grade it, I think Eternals is doing really well. It's holding fairly nicely. It only had a dip of 24% from the weekend prior. So it's staying within the top five since it released on November 5th. So for about a little over a month, it's been staying in the, the bottom the bottom portion of the box office. So we'll see if it's able to do that with Spider-Man No Way Home coming out this week. Especially, I gave the comparison when Eternals first came out that if it's still playing around this time, maybe Eternals is able to get a little bit of a boost because of the buzz for Spider-Man No Way Home like Captain Marvel was able to get when Avengers Endgame came out in 2019. So I'm very interested to see where Eternals ends up this weekend. If it, if it stays at number five, if it maybe goes up a couple notches in the top five maybe or if it continues to slide down in the top 10 of the box office so that's one to definitely keep an eye out for when it comes to this upcoming weekend and then staying at the number six excuse me staying at the number six spot this weekend was resident evil welcome to raccoon city which grossed 1.6 million dollars and now has a domestic total of 15.8 million internationally grossed 14.9 and it now has a worldwide total of 30 million dollars then moving on to the number seven spot this weekend, continuing the trend of staying where they were from week to week, staying at the number seven spot was Clifford the Big Red Dog, which grossed another $1.3 million and now has $47 million domestically, $14 million internationally for a worldwide total of $62 million. Then moving out to the last two or the final three spots in the top 10 this weekend, Coming at number eight was Christmas with the Chosen, The Messengers. It grossed an additional $1.2 million, $13 million domestically. And it also continues to have $13 million worldwide as it has not played anywhere else around the world. And then coming in at number nine was Dune, which grows $857,000 and now has a domestic total of $106 million, $283 million internationally for a worldwide total of $389 million worldwide. So once again, Dune is posting some good numbers, especially since it's been out for a couple months now, still doing really, really, really well. And then coming in at number 10 this weekend to round out the box office was Venom Let There Be Carnage, which grossed another $850,000 and now has $212 million domestically, $281 million internationally for a worldwide total of $493 million, one of the highest grossing films of 2021. A great story, a great run for Sony leading up to Spider-Man this weekend. So we'll see how that fares as well. And then the other opening weekend film was National Champions, which came in at the number 13 spot with only $300,000. And that's one where not a great start for the film, but it's playing more for a VOD release. So it's just getting a little run at the mill in theaters right now before I'm sure the studio is hoping for a little bit more eyeballs when it comes out early January on VOD for people to see, especially in the run-up to the College National Championship game coming in the beginning of the new year. So that's really all it is for the weekend box office. So once again, going from 10 to 1, coming in number 10 was Venom, Let There Be Carnage. Coming in number 9 was Dune. Number 8 was Christmas with the Chosen, The Messengers. 7, Clifford the Big Red Dog. 6, Resident Evil, Welcome to Raccoon City. Number 5 again was Eternals. Number 4 was House of Gucci. Number 3 was Ghostbusters Afterlife. Number 2 was Encanto. And then coming in as number 1 this weekend, disappointingly with its results, but still at number 1, the newcomer this weekend was West Side Story. So what did you think about the box office this weekend? What do you think West Side Story needs to do to become a success out of a disastrous first weekend in theaters? Let me know what you think down below and leave your thoughts. 
Speaking of West Side Story and awards potential, I want to move on now to my brand new topic that I introduced on the podcast a couple weeks ago. And that, of course, is my award season roundup news where I bring all the updates going on with award season leading up to the Academy Awards in March. And today, actually, we had two major nomination announcements come from two major voting bodies that have implications when it comes to the the landscape of what the Oscar pool could be come January when nominations are announced. So the first one that I want to talk about real quick is one that usually has a great impact when it comes to the start of award season, quote unquote, officially in January when we get a lot more of the red carpets and a lot more of the notoriety is, of course, the Golden Globe Awards. But because of the the backlash and the scandals that the Hollywood Foreign Press have been in this year, the impact of the Golden Globes will probably be less substantial than they have been in recent years. So they are still going to be putting on a show that's going to be live streamed. NBC, which is kind of the parent company, they ho- they they host and they they give a, a voice to the Golden Globes. They do not have that this year, so they will probably most likely be live streamed on the internet in some way, shape, or form. It's unclear if studios, because they kind of disassociate themselves from the HFPA in the Globes. Who knows if they'll send their talent or their clients to these awards when they were nominated. So there's a lot of questions when it comes to the Golden Globes, but I still want to go over the nominations that came out because again, they still did vote, even though it's a different voting body than what the Academy will usually go for. Again, it gives a good temperature of the room for where certain members or certain voting bodies could go and what titles are in legit serious contention for some Oscar gold this year. So to start off with the Golden Globes, we're going to start in Best Director for a Major Motion Picture. The nominees were Kenneth Branagh for Belfast, Jane Champion for The Power of the Dog, Maggie Gyllenhaal for The Lost Daughter, Steven Spielberg for West Side Story, and Denny Villeneuve for Dune. And just again, real quick to talk about the overall nomination votes, and usually the, the films that accumulate the most votes, the Golden Globes this year, it was The Power of the Dog and Belfast led with six nominations apiece. And one of them for The Power of the Dog, of course, and Belfast was Jane Champion and Kenneth Branagh in Best Director. Now to move on to Best Performance by an Actress in a Motion Picture, Musical, or Comedy. The nominees were Marion Cotillard for Annette, Alana Hyam for Licorice Pizza, Jennifer Lawrence for Don't Look Up, Emma Stone for Cruella, and Rachel Zegler for West Side Story. And then moving on to Best Performance by an Actor in a Motion Picture Drama. The nominees are Mahershala Ali for Swank Song, Javier Bardem for Being the Ricardos, Benedict Cumberbatch for The Power of the Dog, Will Smith for King Richard, and Denzel Washington for The Tragedy of Macbeth. And then moving on to Best Performance by an Actor in a Motion Picture Musical or Comedy. The nominees are Leonardo DiCaprio for Don't Look Up, Peter Dinklage for Sierno, Andrew Garfield for Tick, Tick, Boom, Cooper Hoffman for Licorice Pizza, and Anthony Ramos for In the Heights. Great to see Anthony Ramos there. In the Heights has him getting a lot of awards hype and a lot of recognition, but for the Golden Globes, it's it, they're able to kind of divvy up between drama and musical, and so it's great to see that Anthony Ramos is getting some recognition there because he did a great job, I think, in that film, and to see that there, I, I, it's, it's nice to see uh, a cast member from that movie get some recognition there. Coming in for Best Supporting Actor in a Motion Picture, the nominees are Ben Affleck for The Tender Bar, Jamie Dorian for Belfast, Sierra Hins for Belfast, Troy Coaster for Coda, and Cody Smith-McPhee for The Power of the Dog. Now coming in for Best Original Score in a Motion Picture, the nominees are The French Dispatch, Encanto, The Power of the Dog, Parallel Mothers, and Dune. Moving on to Best Let's see, Best Picture in a Musical or Comedy, the nominees are Sierno, Don't Look Up, Licorice Pizza, Tick, Tick, Boom, and West Side Story. And then moving to Best Supporting Actress in a Motion Picture, the nominees are... Katarina Balfi for Belfast, Ariana DeBote for West Side Story, Kristen Dunst for The Power of the Dog, Anjanu Ellis for King Richard, and Ruth Nega for Passing. And then moving to Best Foreign Language Film, the nominees are Compartment Number 6 from Finland, Russia, and Germany, Drive My Car from Japan, The Hand of God from Italy, A Hero from France and Iran, and Parallel Mothers from Spain. 
And then moving on to Best Screenplay in a Motion Picture, the nominees are Paul Thomas Anderson for Licorice Pizza, Kenneth Branagh for Belfast, Jane Champion for The Power of the Dog, Adam McKay for Don't Look Up, and Aaron Sorkin in Being the Ricardos. And then moving on to Best Performance by an Actress in a Motion Picture Drama, the nominees are Jessica Chastain for The Eyes of Tammy Faye, Olivia Coleman for The Lost Daughter, Nicole Kidman for Being the Ricardos, Lady Gaga for House of Gucci, and Kristen Stewart for Spencer. And then finally, or one of the last ones that I want to get to real quick is Best Motion Picture Drama. The nominees are Belfast, Coda, Dune, King Richard, and The Power of the Dog. And the final two are Best Original Song in a Motion Picture, which is King from King Richard, Dos Ogres from Encanto, Down to Joy from Belfast, Here I Am from Respect, and No Time to Die from No Time to Die. And the, the song from King Richard is Be Alive from Beyonce. And then finally, the last film category in the Golden Globes this year is Best Motion Picture Animated, and the nominees are Encanto, Flea, Luca, My Sunny Mod, and Raya and the Last Dragon. So honestly, even if there's not a lot of coverage with the Golden Globes and through all the controversy, a lot of the, especially within the film side, there there isn't a whole lot of controversy. I think there a lot of these nominations makes sense. I, I the passing was able to get a few nominations as well. You were able to see Belfast and the Power of the Dog continue to be kind of the early front runners and early winners in award season so far. West Side Story continues to do a great job in turnaround. Not a lot of love for Nightmare Alley, which got zero nominations at the Golden Globes this year, which is kind of surprising since it is the HFPA and Guillermo del Toro is is Hispanic. He's from another country. You would think that maybe they would be a little bit more catered towards him and, and show appreciation for another film of his that he hasn't done since 2017 but maybe they all haven't seen it yet but again it seems like from the two films that came from two weeks ago between West Side Story and Nightmare Alley the one that had the quickest turnaround and is resonating a lot more with people it seems like is West Side Story over Nightmare on, on excuse me over Nightmare Alley but I wouldn't be shocked if we still see some more waves coming from Nightmare Alley in the coming months before nomination morning at the for the Oscars but I was really happy to see Emma Stone for best performance by an actress in a motion picture for Cruella I think she did a really good job in that movie I think it's a great performance by her so to see her get some recognition there that was great Alana Hyam for Licorice Pizza. I would say it's between her and Rachel Zegler in that category right away. We'll see how it all plays out. But again, with I think a lot of these categories, though, it's going to be a question of, is it going to have any impact? I already saw 20th Century Studios is putting out some congratulations for the awards they were nominated for, for the Critics' Choice and for the Golden Globes. Not a lot of, a lot of other studios are doing that. So again, are the HFPA going to have a lot of swing and power with this, or is it going to go another way? Is it going to go the Critics' Choice way, which is also debuting on the same exact day and will be announcing their winners on January 6th, I believe. So again, there's going to be, it's going to be very interesting to see how that, that plays out. Or excuse me, it's going to be January 8th, actually. But it's going to be interesting. It's going to be. I'm very curious to see how it all kind of, uh, kind of plays out on on January 9th on that Sunday, the first Sunday of January. But we'll see. We'll see where it goes and how that all plays out. But the one that I want to get to now is actually the Critics' Choice Awards. And again, sometimes the Critics' Choice Awards can correlate what with what could get nominated and what could win at the Academy Awards. But again, gives a really good indication of the temperature of the room and the big winners at the Critics' Choice nominations today were Belfast and West Side Story, which led the nominations with 11 apiece. And we're going to get into it right now with every single one of the categories, and then we'll talk about it and, and what it could mean for the nominations down the line and what it could mean for the rest of award season. So to start off, we're going to go from top to bottom, and we're going to start off with Best Score, and the nominees are Nicholas Bretel for Don't Look Up, Johnny Greenwood for The Power of the Dog, and also for Spencer, Nathan Johnson for Nightmare Alley, and Hans Zimmer for Dune. And then Best Song, will for the nominations for Best Song are Be Alive from 
King Richard, Dos Ogrides from Encanto, Guns Go Bang from The Harder They Fall, Just Look Up from Don't Look Up, and No Time to Die from No Time to Die. And going on to Best Foreign Language Film, the nominees are A Hero, Drive My Car, Flee, The Hand of God, and The Worst Person in the World. And then moving on to Best Animated Feature, the nominees are Encanto, Flee, Luca, The Mitchells vs. The Machines, and Raya and the Last Dragon. Best Comedy, the nominees are Barb and Star Go to Visit Del Mar, Don't Look Up, Free Guy, The French Dispatch, and Licorice Pizza. The nominees for Best Visual Effects are Dune, The Matrix Resurrections, Nightmare Alley, No Time to Die, and Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Moving on to Best Hair and Makeup, the nominees are Cruella, Dune, The Eyes of Tammy Faye, House of Gucci, and Nightmare Alley. For Best Costume Design, the nominees are Jenny Behaven for Cruella, Luis Segura for Nightmare Alley, Paul Taswell for West Side Story, Jacqueline West and Robert Morgan for Dune, and Janie Yates for House of Gucci. Best Editing, the nominees are West Side Story, Belfast, Licorice Pizza, The Power of the Dog, and Dune. In the category for Best Production Design, the nominees are Belfast, Nightmare Alley, The French Dispatch, West Side Story, and Dune. For Best Cinematography, the nominees are The Tragedy of Macbeth, Dune, West Side Story, Nightmare Alley, The Power of the Dog, and Belfast. For Best Adapted Screenplay, the nominees are The Power of the Dog, The Lost Daughter, Coda, West Side Story, and Dune. In Best Original Screenplay, the nominees are Licorice Pizza, King Richard, Belfast, Don't Look Up, and Being the Ricardos. For Best Director, the nominees are Paul Thomas Anderson for Licorice Pizza, Kenneth Branagh for Belfast, Jane Champion for The Power of the Dog, Guillermo del Toro for Nightmare Alley, Steven Spielberg from West Side Story, and Denis Villeneuve for Dune. Best Acting Ensemble, the nominees are Belfast, Don't Look Up, The Harder They Fall, Licorice Pizza, The Power of the Dog, and West Side Story. Moving on to Best Young Actor and Actress, the nominees are Jude Hill for Belfast, Cooper Hoffman for Licorice Pizza, Amelia Jones for Coda, Woody Norman for Come On, Come On, Sanaya Sidney for King Richard, and Rachel Zegler for West Side Story. The nominees for Best Supporting Actress, the nominees are Katrina Baffey for Belfast, Ariana DeBoe for West Side Story, Anne Dowd for Mass, Kristen Dunst for The Power of the Dog, Anunjue Ellis for King Richard, and Rita Moreno for West Side Story. And then moving on to Best Supporting Actor, the nominees are Jamie Dorian for Belfast, Sierra Hins for Belfast, Troy Coaster for Coda, Jared Leto for House of Gucci, J.K. Simmons for Being the Ricardos, and Cody Smith-McPhee for The Power of the Dog. And then moving on finally to Best Actress, the nominees are Jessica Chastain for The Eyes of Tammy Faye, Olivia Coleman for The Lost Daughter, Lady Gaga for House of Gucci, Alana Hyam for Licorice Pizza, Nicole Kidman for Being the Ricardos, and Kristen Stewart for Spencer. And then the last acting category, the nominees for Best Actor are Nicolas Cage for Pig, Benedict Cumberbatch for The Power of the Dog, Peter Dinklage for Sierno, Andrew Garfield for Tick, Tick, Boom, Will Smith for King Richard, Denzel Washington for The Tragedy of Macbeth. And in the final category, the nominees for Best Picture are Belfast, Coda, Don't Look Up, Dune, King Richard, Licorice Pizza, Nightmare Alley, The Power of the Dog, Tick, Tick, Boom, and West Side Story. So those are the 10 nominations for Best Picture, and those are all the categories for the Critics' Choice Awards on the film side. A couple days ago, they did announce the nominees for the television side of their voting body, but right now we're just going to focus on what they did on film. And overall, again, first off, just looking at Best Picture, I would not be surprised if this correlates to what we could see come Oscar nomination morning in January. I do believe, or February rather, excuse me, on, on in February, I do believe that 
this could be the 10 list. I, I do think maybe if there's some changes, maybe something like Don't Look Up could be replaced with something like Being the Ricardos. But I think for the most part, this is the 10 that we're going to get because, again, with the Academy Awards this year, it's not doing the 5 to 10 where you have to get 1% of the vote. You, It just has to be, it's just 10 straight nominations and that's it. it as long as it's 10, that's where it's going to be. So I think with these 10, these could very well be what we see common nomination morning. When it comes to the acting categories, to me, no real surprise. The only thing is that with the Critics' Choice, they do add a sixth spot. So when you look at these acting categories, that sixth person, you kind of look at the category and you look to see the names. And with each one, you kind of say, okay, when it comes to the Oscar nomination voting, I could see that person being the sixth person that doesn't get the spot or this person or that person. Then you start kind of dissecting it from there. And when you look at these categories, the one that stands out to me, of course, is a surprising one so far early on in this Oscar season. And that, of course, is Nicolas Cage for Pig. Throughout all the Critics' Choice circles right now, he's been getting a lot of love for this film. And I've heard really good things about the film and his performance. I'm shocked that it's getting a lot of awards acclaim so far. But it seems like he could be that sixth slot that maybe is the dark horse that gets into the top five and gets an Oscar nominated, uh, excuse me, an Oscar nomination for best actor which would be at this stage in his game where who who he is right now that would be awesome and great especially when it comes in an indie film like like pig i think would be really kind of cool to see because nicholas cage has always been an oscar winner first of all and an oscar nominated actor when he was younger so he's still a great a great performer and he does that just in weird obscure films and to potentially reward him with something like this i think is really really kind of cool to see and the same thing for best actress i think Jessica Chastain, Olivia Coleman, Lady Gaga, Nicole Kidman, Kristen Stewart, those are the the five that we've really been hearing as being kind of the, the top contenders. Alana Hyam definitely seems like she's that sixth spot with I think Rachel Zegler being at that number seven spot right now. So I think those two will be contending for that last fifth spot of Best Actress. So we'll see what happens there. But when you look at supporting actor, I think for the most part, this is what we're going to see as well. I don't believe in supporting actors. I think in the long run, when we get to nomination morning, I don't think we're going to get two actresses from West Side Story. I think they would choose one over the other. I think I could be wrong. I would love to see both of them in there. Or I could see maybe Anne Dowd getting leaving, being left out for Mass. That film has been building up some late season buzz as well. So we'll see what happens there. But I think Enjuin Ellis, I think Kristen Dunst, uh, Katarina Balfi, I think those are the ones that definitely seem like locks. At, at least right now, they don't. I want. I want to say locks. I don't want to say locks. But in certainties right now, and getting into the top four or five, I think those are the ones to look at as top contenders right now. So, but overall, though, I think. Again, passing did okay at the Golden Globes, not great here. And Nightmare Alley didn't do well at the Golden Globes, but did very well during the Critics' Choice Award nominations this morning. West Side Story continues to be a nomination raker. Same thing with Belfast and The Power of the Dog. I think that is a film that people have to look out for so far. If you were to say a film that has been running away with the early precursors, it would probably be Belfast and Power of the Dog. But we'll see what happens in the next couple of weeks, in the next couple of months. Things are going to be up and down and, and it's going to be what contains the most buzz in January and February leading up to the nominations and the voting for the Oscars and the Screen Actors Guild and the DGA, PGA, all the guilds that come along with it and are kind of the important precursors to indicate where certain Academy voters are going to be when it comes to nominations and also to winners for the Oscar telecast in March. So uh, still a lot of season left to go. This is just the beginning, but again, this gives us an idea of the films that people are looking at right now that are the true main contenders that they are kind of eyeing for some of their top prizes of 2021. So overall, what did you guys think about the nominations for the Craig's Choice Awards and the Golden Globes? Let me know what you think down below and leave your thoughts. And moving away now from the awards season roundup, I want to move on now to some trending trailers that came out over the last couple of days. And the first one I want to start off with was one that actually came out this morning, along with all the other news that appear to start off this week as well. And that, of course, is for one of the highly anticipated films coming out next year. And that is the latest from the Fantastic Beasts franchise.
franchise, Fantastic Beasts, The Secrets of Dumbledore. And this has been a, a sub-franchise within the Wizarding World and Harry Potter that I've never just, I've never been able to get on the train for it. And watching this trailer, I just felt the same way that I did when watching the first two movies, which is, this looks cool. I love the Wizarding World. We see Eddie Remain come back, Jude Law. We get Mads Mikkelsen replacing Johnny Depp as Grella Grindelwald. We get to go back to Hogwarts, it seems like. So all those things are great to see, and it's a new time space. We see younger versions of these characters. Those are all really interesting, but it just really hasn't been able to connect with me in a way that I thought it was going to be able to do. And I just, I just don't know. And I don't know if this is going to be able to connect with people anymore because the last film did come out in 2018. So is there still a a buzz about this franchise because there always will be a buzz about Harry Potter and, and that and that specific film franchise within the Wizarding World but with this and, and other things is there still traction and that to me is is the curious thing because it just feels like they they started out with something that didn't really need to expand to what it is now the Fantastic Beasts the actual story of Newt Scamander doesn't invoke this whole Wizarding War it was really that first book Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find them and that was pretty much it so to see some of these characters i just don't believe them to be these kind of warriors and that and and what they're becoming right now in this war between dumbledore and grindelwald but again i'll go see it because i'm a harry potter fan i love the wizarding world i want to see where the story goes i've at least seen the two films so i'm gonna go see this third one to just see the continuation of the story i am actually though interested and excited to see more from jude law because i think he is a really good young Dumbledore and there just wasn't a whole lot of him in the second film likely because that was a lot of build-up so hopefully this film is less build-up and more continuing the story and evolving these characters and what we want to see it from what we've seen in the first two films and what we're going to see moving forward with the rest of the storyline that is set to continue with two more after this third one and also the big question is how is Mad Mickelson going to take over from Johnny Depp and Mads Mickelson is an incredible actor and definitely it's a big surprise that they didn't put a lot of the kind of white makeup that they did on him where he has the the white mustache, the white hair. It's a different look. So how are they going to explain that? I'm very curious about, but also how he's going to make it his own and and also retain some of the qualities that Depp brought to the character because you don't want to completely reverse and change a character that you've already been following for two films, but how is he still going to make it his own? And if you know anything about Mads Mikkelsen, he can play a villain really well. So how is he going to do this role again? Again, sometimes when you when you replace an actor, sometimes it could be a step down from what you had. But in this case, I've said it and I continue with it. I think they got to step up. And, you know, Johnny Depp, he is who he is. And, and he's dealing with a lot of stuff right now, but, but really some really bad stuff. And But as an artist, you can say what you want about him. And, and he's a good actor. But I think Mads Mikkelsen is a lot better than him. And I think he's going to do something really, really cool with this. So I'm really excited to see what he's going to bring with the Grindelwald character. I am interested to see how Steve Cloves does this script with J.K. Rowling because J.K., you you couldn't do any of this without her. So her genius is on that level, but it's more in the book realm. She hasn't done a really good job with these scripts. So, because she's not really a script writer. So I'm really curious to see how Steve Clove is able to maybe help her in, in directions of certain things and say, well, we can we shouldn't do this here, but we can do some things here and the format of writing of writing script words instead of, of literary words. I'm very curious to see how they work really well together. And also because of all again, the the the, the controversies between Johnny Depp and the things that JK Rowling has said. Are people still interested in this? And, and, and in a year, in 2022, when there's going to be a lot of movies coming out, a lot of anticipated big blockbusters that were either A, delayed from the last two years because of the pandemic or were already scheduled to come out in 2022, it's going to be a stacked year. So how is The Secrets of Dumbledore going to justify A, being made, be, other than being a continuation, but also, again, getting butts in seats? Because, again, with the pandemic still going on, people are going to be selective on the movie they see and if there's something else they want to see if they're going to save their money for something else you got to be able to convince people and again it's been a couple years do people still want to see this franchise so 
a lot of questions going into this one. I really liked the some things within the trailer, some things I'm excited about, like Dumbledore and seeing what Mads does as Grindelwald. I think he did a really good first impression of showing us what he can do in this trailer. I liked seeing Hogwarts again. That was uh, some good nostalgia as well. So we'll see where this goes. But overall, cool trailer. Didn't didn't blow me away. Didn't get me excited more so than I than I am right now. Just kind of going with it and, and seeing what it really is. But We'll see what happens when it comes out in April of next year. What did you guys think about the trailer for for Fantastic Beasts? Are you on the same wavelength as I am? Are you a little bit more excited? Are you not? It didn't really move the needle for me, so that's why to me, good trailer, okay. Didn't blow my brains out like I think some others have over the past couple of months and even year or so. Moving on now to two TV trailers that I'm really excited about checking out next year or kind of leading from this year to next year year and the first one is set to come out in 2022 on paramount plus the final 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 finally getting a halo television show we got our first trailer for it even though it's really just a minute tease on what this show is going to be about and we didn't get really any story details of what's happening but we got a lot of cool establishing space shots we got a look at some planets some interesting characters potentially and of course our first live action look at the master chief and he looks awesome i just want to see all this in motion and for me again it's more so the excitement of this is finally happening because again like i said when the first teaser came out it's it was always supposed to we were always supposed to get something some live action version of this video game franchise and we're finally getting into television which i think is perfect for this property right now and i'm really curious to see how paramount plus handles it will it get a hopefully a movie or tv like we see on hbo or netflix quality like budget that other streamers are getting as well because i think it deserves it hopefully the storytelling is where it needs to be with this because there's a lot of complicated mythology and characters how are you going to simplify it enough per se that you keep fans from the video game excited but also bringing in new people that might want to check this out as well so again it was only a teaser didn't get a whole lot but what we got was established and it only again just needed to tease us and it did that i think it gets people excited for what they're going to see come next year but I know one show that a lot of people are buzzing about and excited about, and that is to round out 2021 to go into 2022. And that, of course, is season four of Cobra Kai, which is ironic because the season three of Cobra Kai brought us into the new year of 2021. So for season four to ring us out into the new year is pretty, pretty ironic and cool and a great kind of full circle moment. I'm sure that's not lost upon with Netflix and why they decided to release it on literally December 31st. But a lot of people have loved the show. I've loved this show. It's just it's surprising how great the show actually is, especially when you saw that this was going to be this is a YouTube original and then it was a great show on there. But then not a lot of people were watching it because who's going to buy YouTube Red or YouTube Originals just for Cobra Kai? And Netflix was able to buy it out from them. And it got a lot of exposure, especially because of the pandemic. A lot more people were starting to watch the first two seasons that were out. And season three was great just overall in terms of content and what they actually put to the table. And also a lot of people watched it and really enjoyed it for the new year. And I think the same thing is going to happen with season four, especially if you know the ending of the third season and the fact that we finally get Johnny and Daniel teaming up together to take down Crease to restore balance to the valley and bring Cobra Kai down. I think it's something that we've been leading up to and the fact that we're getting a new All-Valley tournament with a lot more stakes involved is amazing and the trailer just showcases all of that and so much more. We still get more of that humor but also that emotion and the great callbacks where we have finally we have Terry Silva coming in from Karate Kid Part 3 and the, the the anguish and antagonistic relationship between him and Daniel from, from the third film. But, but Johnny doesn't really know this guy. So how is that all going to come together? And also the teen stuff. And this is a show where you get all this stuff from the adults. But this is a teen drama as well. And they do such a great job of really layering all these characters. I think everybody doesn't see this as like a YA kind of storylines that go on with these teenagers. You care for them and you care for the journeys that they have been going on through all these seasons 
seasons. And I'm really, really excited to see how that all comes about. The, 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 I think the last couple of episodes are going to be just insane. And again, it's just amazing that they've been able to create the creators of the show, have been able to manage and develop this whole world that we didn't even think we needed within a Karate Kid sequel, and they've been managing to do that and, and reintroduce us to all these characters and add nuances to them and backstories that we didn't think we needed and adds not just to the show, but adds to the original films as well. And it's just, I'm in awe for what they've been able to do with Cobra Kai, and it just continues to just, just seems like they're able to just go on this role that is just remarkable. And season four looks badass, looks awesome, and I can't can't wait for it on December 31st. I'm I have I'm gonna be going to a New Year's Eve party that day, but I will be sure to get up early and binge watch every single episode before the new year rings in. So we'll see what happens, but I, I, I cannot wait. I love what they did, the callbacks again, everything that we've been seeing consistently from the first three seasons we're seeing in season four, and I cannot wait. So overall, what did you guys think about not just the Cobra Kai trailer, but also the Halo trailer, the Fantastic Beast trailer? Which one was your favorite out of the three? Let me know down below and leave your thoughts. And the final thing that I want to talk about on the San Basel podcast today is some finally getting some Avatar 3 details. Finally, after years and years and years, it feels like we haven't gotten anything, especially because the film is coming out in in a year, really. Around this time, Avatar 2 will hopefully be coming out for people to finally see after so many years. And we've been getting some little plot details here and there, some photos, but Total Film was able to get a little bit more access than anybody else. And they got some great details in regard to what we're going to be getting with not just Avatar 2, but this epic storytelling that James Cameron and the writers have been doing for four sequels that they have planned out from Avatar 2 to Avatar 5. And they were able to sit down with one of the main producers, John Landau, and he talked about what they've been able to do from a creative standpoint with the movies, but also talking about some of the plot details that we're going to be getting. But first, he talked about the challenge of writing these stories and focusing on on one specific one each time they're making one of these films. So a large portion of our time was writing, with the challenge that each of those four scripts had to individually resolve itself in a story that concludes with a big emotional resolution, but when you look at them as a whole, the connected story arc for all four movies creates an even larger epic saga. I think the story of Avatar 2 and the strength of the story is what Jim, James Cameron, always does in any of his movies. He writes in universal themes that are bigger than any one genre. And if you think about this, there's there's really no more universal themes than family. At the center of each of our sequels is the Sully family. What are the dynamics that parents go through to protect their family? And then John Lando goes into some of the plot details in regards to where we we are going to see the Sully family when we begin Avatar 2. The Sully's idyllic life is disrupted when the RDA mining operation returns Pandora, forcing Jake to take the family to what is perceived as a safe harbor at the reef. And when you get to the reef, there's a clan we call the Metatakaini, continues Landau. The Sully's are no longer in the environments that they know, the rainforest. They become the fish out of water. They become the fish out of water from a cultural standpoint and from an environmental standpoint. So... That's from John Landau, and that is the most that I've ever heard about Avatar 2 because the only details I know about it is that we were going to get aspects of water and the water landscapes of Pandora that we hadn't seen before. And, and, and Cameron, being the technical revolutionary that he is, is going to implore some new aspects that we had never seen before that will probably change the game from underwater scenery going forward in filmmaking forever. So that aspect of it I'm really excited to see and the fact that this is going to be taking place this around the same timeline as we have that we haven't seen these characters for over a decade and at this point Jake and Natiri are parents now Jake has been running the clan for a long time and they have a bunch of kids now and I and I like that where it's not like we're picking up six months later or a year later that we're going to be living in this very in this very meta world and it's going to be something that has been lived in and experienced and so I'm really, really excited about that. And again, the fact that we're getting four of these is a little concerning to me because when it comes to planning out stuff, if you don't have, I mean, you, they obviously had success with the first film, but 
when creating all these stories, you don't know how the how the next film is going to be perceived because it's been so long. Again, kind of like with Fantastic Beasts, but in a less controversial way, are people still excited to see these movies? Are, do people still want to check them out? And I think worldwide, as we saw, that Avatar regained the the king as the box office being the highest grossing film of all time with the re-release that happened in China earlier in the year. So maybe worldwide, people are still excited to see it, but in other areas around the world, do people still want to check out this this franchise and be a part of it? So I think that's going to be very interesting to see. And again, I've learned never to bet against James Cameron in any kind of shape, shape or fashion whatsoever. He is one of the great filmmakers of our time. I think he's one that goes unnoticed because he takes his time with his movies. And the reason he does that is because he pushes the envelope with every single one he does. He's only directed within the span of two decades, two and a half now. It'll be... The, including these sequels it'll be three or four films with titanic being 97 he didn't direct anything in the 2000s other than that he was working on the on the one avatar film and then for one whole decade he was working on making five avatar films so again it is a daunting task but if anyone can pull it off it is james cameron and i'm really excited about this and to see sam worthington back zoe saldana we're going to be seeing kate winslet it seems like stephen lang is going to be coming back sigourney weaver how some of these characters are coming back we have no idea but i'm very curious and this is definitely gonna be one on my most anticipated list because i love the first film it really was a one-of-a-kind experience it changed the game for filmmaking like james cameron has done it in all of his other films in terms of motion capture cgi visual effects it changed everything 3d for the next decade it revolutionized the the, the decade that we had in the 2010s in terms of filmmaking and, and post-production and 3D conversion and the way that we're able to have stuff like the volume and and motion capture like the Planet of the Apes movies and stuff in the MCU and the DCU and all this other stuff within VFX and post-production and a lot of that is is credited to what Avatar was able to do in 2009. So just on the technical front, I think that is definitely what I'm really looking forward to, but also story-wise what he's able to come up with because even though the first Avatar film is a very simplistic plot and it's one that has been done a lot of times I think it was somewhat effective and I, I'm very curious to see uh, spending all this time working on these scripts what he's been able to do with five films but I do think it's smart that they are working on just these first two movies and then if these next two movies do well then they'll move on to making the fourth and fifth film in production. So again, I'm very curious to see how this all does. The fact that we're getting these after so many release date pushes, 2018, 2019, 2021, and then to move to 2022, as long as it doesn't move its release date, I think we'll be good. And again, to me, we're getting these details, we're getting some first look behind the scenes images, but now for me again it's seeing footage i'll believe it when i see it when i see the first teaser trailer and it says the date of december 2022 then i'll i'll truly truly believe it that this thing is actually made and that it is actually coming to fruition and we're getting it so until then i'm not saying i'm a skeptic but i i need to be i, I need this to be true before i get overly excited but i'm still looking forward to and anticipating it and what it has to offer hopefully next year what did you guys think about these details for avatar 2 and the avatar franchise as a whole let me know down below and leave your thoughts and with that down and out of the way that will do it for this edition of the sam Bissell podcast once again everyone thank you so much as always for tuning in be sure to check out my channel for more content you can check me out on spotify apple podcast stitcher radio public soundcloud and much more also make sure to tune in on to the ambiguous podcast solutions and be sure to check out the other amazing shows that are on here such as you mad bro the number one source to see what the internet is pissed off about on a weekly basis also check out goal-driven professionals geared toward improving client relations return on investment and acquisition costs for independent businesses and services also check out the daily grind a weekly motivational podcast with kelly johnson giving you everyday tips and key takeaways on reaching your goals also along the way make sure to check out these other amazing shows on the podcast solutions such as wrestle attic radio fretzelmania podcast and midnight showing you can check these out and so much more on the website ambiguouspodcastsolutions.com also on facebook and twitter at real ambiguous and if you want to check out canopy treehouse use the coupon code ambiguous also you can check me out on my social media feeds such as twitter 
at Bissell Samuel, that's B-U-S-S-E-L-L-S-A-M-U-E-L, and also on Facebook at Sam Bissell. Once again, everyone, thank you so much for tuning in. Again, if you're checking out the Spider-Man No Way Home reactions, make sure to make sure you, you stay away from the spoilers. Don't spoil it for anybody else. And again, we'll be talking about that tomorrow on the Sam Bissell podcast. But until then, everyone, keep on screening. <laughs>